0: welcome to the vine church podcast today we welcome my friend jared wilson and jared is a former pastor, and now he's currently uh, on staff as a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. And Jared is a guy that I've known for a long time, though we have not chatted much in person, but it's one of those internet friends that you know each other through back when blogs were popular and social media and all these things. Um, And so. It's just a joy, Jared, to have you on our podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about uh, lots of things with you today.
1: Thank you, Zach. Hey, we we do go back a little ways, don't we, On online, and uh, I've always been appreciative of your focus on the gospel. You were one of the few guys that sort of emerged from uh, the fad. <laughs> I mean, there was a day when everybody was talking gospel centrality. Right and then it was sort of like some people they lost interest and so i've been grateful to uh when i encounter you since those old you know since the uh golden age i suppose yes the golden uh, age you, of blogging. you haven't you haven't gotten off message i, I really hope so
0: that. i hope so um I appreciate that man and i remember uh i wrote a post i mean this would have been gosh this would have been uh six, seven years ago, I don't even know, maybe longer, I just wrote a post being honest about some struggles with anxiety and depression. And I remember you commented on that post, just sharing some similar feelings about how um, those things had happened to you or or something like that. And I just remember really appreciating that you had read that post and you commented and um, I don't know if you even remember that, but that meant a lot to me.
1: I don't. I thought you were gonna say, and and you said, just suck it up. <laughs> Stop
0: feeling that way. That's right. Just put a just put a smile on your face. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> well, man, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Like, um, what makes you tick? Who are you? Um, you know, what's where? Where have you been in life? You know, just let the the people at Divine Church just kind of learn a little bit about you.
1: Sure. Um, As you said, I I serve on the faculty at Midwestern Seminary uh, where I came about six years ago um, out of pastoral ministry. I started out in local church ministry uh, summer. I graduated high school, so 1994, and been in three or four different states since then. Let me think, Texas, Tennessee, Vermont. So three different states and a variety of churches uh, when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, I was leading the young adult ministry of uh, sort of a uh, attractional mega church. and then we planted a very small church out of that church um, uh, in in Nashville. And then I went to pastor a small rural church uh, in Vermont, and was there six years uh, before coming to Midwestern Seminary. So um, I've been in a lot of different contexts. Uh, I think the only context I you know haven't served in is um, you know, like urban, um, inner city or something like that or, yeah. or or yeah, you know, urban ministry. Uh but I've been around a little bit and um yeah, I like to I like to write and I like to read and hang out with my wife. I, I don't know yeah. what else you want to know. That's great. <laughs> about what makes me tick. I yeah, no, it's I great, guess. man. I, I yeah, yeah. You are a prolific writer. I really appreciate yeah.
0: that about you and um I really respect that about you because I know how hard that is. Um, to just sit and and think very clearly, and the process of revision, and um, you know how to know when a project is finished, mm. and enduring just the revision and revision and meditating, and I mean it takes me like two or three hours to to write a succinct blog post that's a thousand <laughs> yeah. words, and and to the to the point where I just I used to do it a lot more, um, and I just don't do it anymore because it's just so exhausting. Yeah. So I really respect your how prolific you are.
1: Well, I I appreciate that. It's it, it's something that I've always done, even since childhood. I've always been a reader and writer, and and so I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> really, I don't know. I don't know how to how to not do it. And I and certainly I was doing it for a long time before I was published. So I, yeah. I figure if if anyone ever decides that I shouldn't be published anymore, I probably would just keep doing it because it's something the Lord has wired me to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a certain loneliness I would imagine in in writing. Do you feel that?
1: Um, yeah, but I'm a like I'm an introverted yep. guy. Um, I don't know if you do Enneagram thing. I I don't, but I've been told. I you know I took the thing through uh, through work. They made sure. <laughs> they
0: made us do the
1: sure. the Enneagram deal, and um, it came out that I'm a I'm a five wing four, and I don't know what any of the of the other ones mean, but right that kind of resonated with me the descriptions of those where i like to be alone I'm, I'm alone in my thoughts a lot and i have kind of running commentary in my head a lot mm-hmm. so writing is just sort of a natural for me kind of way of um of in, enjoying a kind of solitude i guess and and trying to express all the stuff that's kind of you know floating around yeah in my that brain. makes sense
0: that makes sense well, let's talk about one of your books. I'm I'm really intrigued by um, the title of the book, Your Jesus is Too Safe. <laughs>
2: and yeah.
0: uh, I, I like that title, um, but I'd love to know, I mean, because I think I've said that probably in some sermons over the years, but I'd love to know what you think that, or how you think about that and what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, so that was my very first book. came out in 2009, and the original title, actually, my working title was The Unvarnished Jesus, and the idea was chapter by chapter kind of highlighting the biblical Christ, sort of peeling back the layers that culture and and even the church sometimes, religion puts on Jesus, so we cast Jesus in our own image. Mm -hmm. And so the book is really a journey through what does, um, not just the historical Jesus, because at that time I, I was really immersed in a lot of historical Jesus studies and things like that, but also just through the lens of the gospel, what is the biblical Jesus saying to us? So the idea is that we have a lot of safe Jesuses in in our brain. We have the ATM Jesus who gives us what we want when we push the right buttons. We have the you know uh, political activist Jesus and the social justice warrior Jesus, and that we have all kinds of Jesuses that are really just projections of our own ambitions Mm -hmm. and there may be elements of truth actually in, in each one of those things, but not, you know, none of them really captures the, you know, the God incarnate messianic King of the gospels. And so your Jesus is too safe, which is a a title that the publisher uh, suggested as an alternate, which I um, agreed to is, is really about how the real Jesus um, yes, loves us as we are. And yet, um stands outside of our personal ambitions and our personal aspirations and and certainly our projections he is his own man so to speak he is his own god man Mm -hmm. um and so we we we're to orient our life around him not sort of fit him into our own sort of personal project yeah who
0: what's the um sun in your in your galaxy or what's the sun in your solar system you know is it me or is it god Yeah. So have you seen, I'd be curious to hear you reflect on how Christian culture, as you observe it, um, has it evolved since you wrote that book in a way? Or do you feel like the same message applies? Um, Or if you were to write that book on 2021, would it be a, a very similar book or would it be different?
1: Um, I think, you know, since then I probably would tweak a couple of things here and there, but I think the essential message would still be the same because, you know, while we may change the habit or the tendency to try to, you know, return the faith, you know, God, you know, I don't remember who said it, but the quote, you know, God made man in his image and man's been trying to return the favor <laughs> ever mm-hmm, since. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an enduring project. And so it may look different from decade to decade, or just kind of you know cultural era to cultural era, but um, I think the essential message is still the same. And I'll give you a little example. I mean, I remember this was um, you know I don't know four elections ago, whatever the 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 dawning of the Obama era, and I and there were a lot of believers our age who were coming out of kind of um, they were re- responding to or rejecting you know the the moral majority religious right kind of yeah. concept and saying look you know God is not Republican and right. and we need to get we need to get politics out of right. you know you, you know politics out of evangelicalism and, and 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 there was some sincerity there the concern that we had married American politics in particular with you know biblical Christianity in, in unhealthy or even idolatrous ways but then what happened was they started using the same rhetoric towards more liberal or, or Democrat (laughs) um, ideas. So they hadn't really rejected the politics. They just rejected a a certain stream of politics and, and just fell into the ditch on on the other side. So it's just a thing that I think, you know, um, because we're sinners and because we're fallen, um, we just have this tendency and we'll co-opt the scriptures for our own ends. And sometimes we'll even, you know, identify that in someone else or in another tribe, and it's a way of actually kind of numbing ourselves to the fact that we're doing it too. So, you know, I still think that's happening uh, today. It's right. certainly happening in, in in more than the political arena. It happens, you know, in all kinds of arenas. But it's you know, it's an enduring you know issue. The children of Israel when they built that golden calf, uh, they ascribed that worship to Yahweh. If you remember, <laughs> like they didn't say. We're not worshiping God anymore, right? Uh, we're going to worship the idol named some, you know, such and such. They made the calf and they bowed down to it, and they said, "This is our worship of Yahweh." Right. So it's so, you know, in a way that's so blatant to us as outsiders, but it's such a subtle thing where we can, um, you know, as Francis, you know, Schaefer said, uh, try to do the Lord's work in man's way or in mm-hmm. man's will. And I, yeah, I just think that's an enduring problem.
0: Yeah, how do you help people? not create a safe Jesus?
1: Well, very uh, gently, <laughs> I think. Um, very pastorally, um, one thing that I think has risen to the surface, um, it's always been an issue, and you know the Bible speaks to this, particularly in Proverbs and other places about speech, and the nature of how to answer speech, and when do you use harshness, and when do you not, those sorts of things, and there's a time for sharp rebuke. But it's becoming uh, more difficult today, I think, perhaps because of the, um, not just social media, but the way social media is conducted. And I would say even things like, um, you know, cable news and and, and, and round the clock sound bites that, that train us to think, not just in terms of outrage, but in, um, you know, not much depth, I suppose. So when someone is engaged in that, very often to kind of come at them sharply or harshly only kind of pushes them or entrenches them further in that kind of thinking. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if, you know, what we ought to do is is really what we've always needed to do, which is to continue to hold up the positive vision of the glory of Christ. Yes. And and be trusting the Holy Spirit more and more to kind of dislodge some of these things from people's hearts. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't rebuke sin or speak against idolatry and that sort of thing. But I think the way people change according to the Bible is by seeing the glory of Jesus. That's right. And and so what we don't see on social media is a whole lot of people upholding the glory of Jesus. What mm-hmm. we see is a lot of kind of you know pointing fingers and and you know you know chastising the other side, scolding the other side, shaming the other side. and it doesn't mean that the other side is is, is it, you know isn't wrong, right but I think the way we go about it very often um, doesn't you know so much commend Christ and the good news. It doesn't come across as if we're good news people. It kind of comes across as, you're making me uncomfortable, you're not in my tribe, you know, so on and so forth. So I think the way today especially is the way of the fruit of the spirit, right? That we Amen. would be, you know, more gentle, more patient, more loving, more kind and and and, and kind of outdo one another showing honor perhaps. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you've been um really influenced by a guy named Ray Ortland. Yes, sir. And uh, when you said that Romans, I think it's 1210, outdo one another in showing honor, um, that made me think of him because I, I remember <laughs> him saying that often in the times that I've been around him. Um, we had Ray's wife on the podcast uh, a few months ago. What um, what has Ray Ortland meant to you and how has he uh, shaped your thinking and your
1: discipleship? Oh, man, it's it's maybe incalculable. When, when I was planting in Nashville, um, it was the same year that Ray was planting in, uh, Emmanuel church. Um, I didn't know that he was in Nashville. I mean, I, you know, I knew who he was. Um, I probably read maybe one of his books or something. And we were praying my team and I were praying that, that the Lord would send us some sort of mentor or somebody who could help us kind of figure out, what it might look like to do a gospel-centered missional church in in nashville and i didn't have you know th- those uh, people resources around us um this was even at a time where uh, you know i wasn't a part of a network i was coming out of you know sort of a, a, a non-denominational independent uh mega church that didn't that wasn't doing gospel centrality that didn't really get us we were kind of aliens which is one reason why we kind of left the plant and so we just didn't have anybody locally. We were, you know, I was listening. I was reading books. I was listening to, pot, uh, um, you know, sermon podcasts and that sort of thing. But um, I, I knew I needed someone to, you know, to disciple me and and help me. So I just Googled or, or Yahoo'd. I don't know what it would have been back, you know, back then. This was about 2005, I think, or 2006. And um, just put in there, Gospel Center Church Nashville. And um, I see this static page. It wasn't even a full you know, website. It was like a static page. I had like a wood grain background. And it said Ray Ortland is planting a manual Church. So I thought last I knew he was in Georgia or something and I thought he was moving to Nashville. Um, I didn't know the whole backstory of him you know leaving Christ Prez and that sort of thing. Um, Ray Orland is planting a manual church in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you're interested in knowing more, you can get coffee with Ray. Um, just imagine this. And I thought, well, I want to have coffee with Ray. So like I sent, I, I did the little contact form and I just said, um, uh, you know, I don't want to join your church, but, (laughs) but I'm planting a church and would love to talk to you. And we met at a Starbucks in, in, in cool Springs, uh, which is area of Franklin, Tennessee, And, um, and just from that moment, I thought I want to be in this guy's orbit. Uh, I want to be in his aura as much as possible. And so we began to meet on a regular basis. We started, uh, together this little pastor's gospel group, which was basically, um, you know, I kind of administrated it and it, but it was just like three or four of us who'd show up wherever Ray was. And he would talk to us for about an hour and a half or so. And we just kind of you know so i got to sit at the feet of ray mm-hmm. eventually my church began meeting um in emmanuel church's building on sunday evenings okay so we were subleasing from them so um very often our folks would go on sunday mornings and attend church in emmanuel as well so i got to hear you know quite a bit of his preaching or you know in those early days too and um just you know struck up a friendship for sure but also um you know a, a lot of lunches and coffees and and time in his study and just soaking up i mean he's been through the ringer but he also has this um inherited wisdom from his father so he refers to his dad a lot i mean you know not just his heavenly father but his dad, who was a pastor you know in california and somewhat well known also um his mother and father uh because they published and things um but he just is the gentlest most jesusy man probably that i've ever known and when i would walk away from meeting with ray i not only would feel challenged that i need to grow more grow deeper but i also um never felt low i felt like i could walk on air i yeah. i walked away from meeting with him thinking i want what he has and yeah. it would be my prayer and aspiration that people who would spend time with me would would walk away feeling like i feel when i walk away with you know from ray i yeah. i want to I want to inherit that spirit as as well.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, I think of like Psalm one, and uh, you know, planted by streams of living water and yields fruit in season. Mm. And whenever I preach that, I always, I think I stole this from John Piper, but so I should credit him. But I think I remember him saying one time, like, you want to be the kind of person that nourishes, like you're fruitful, and people can come and eat the fruit off your tree, the metaphor Mm. being they're nourished and provided for, you know, by being in your presence, the opposite would be someone who's a drainer and, and they eat the fruit off your tree and it's just like poison or it's rotten. And, um, and so what you described is the, the former example of just nourished and, and, and built up, uh, through healthy food that is, you know, mentorship discipleship um and, and that's just so beautiful I, I i pray that our churches can be um filled with people like that you know and all of us should aspire to be that way so let me ask you uh not as heavy so what years were you in nashville
1: um I, we lived in nashville from 1997 to 2009
0: so wow we years. were there at the same time oh we were yes <laughs> okay and we have lots in common i was we lived in antioch and i was working in the christian music industry um uh from 2004 to 2006 okay and so we went to a church down in uh not franklin um down south that met in the movie theater uh it might have been cool springs um okay it called rolling rolling meadows no rolling
1: hills Rolling Hills, Rolling okay. Hills. It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, they're down we in, Franklin in 90, now. Yeah, we moved in 97. My wife worked for Lifeway and was the children uh, children's product buyer. Okay. And I went to Middle Tennessee State University, so I was finishing up school while she worked. And I worked at the Baptist bookstore briefly. We, early on, um, joined Bellevue Community Church, which yeah. later kind of changed to Church of Hope Park. But we lived, actually, in the Una, uh, Antioch area for... A year or two before yeah. we moved to Fairview, which is out out okay. west. I don't know if okay. you remember Fairview. No. So if you gone is it, is it ninety? Not ninety six. Is it 96? No. I um. I, if you take I forty mm-hmm. out, you know west past Bellevue, there's a little town called Fairview, which is where we lived. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're the same I, that's age. So we
0: lived in. Uh, I'm. I graduated high school ninety four as well. And okay. And we uh, lived in Nashville together. Yeah, it's a funny coincidence. But yeah, I was on the road all the time as a musician and traveled with an artist. And so I was never home. And it was just a season of chaos, you know, two small kids. And my wife was <laughs> trying to like facilitate me living the dream. And but it was bless her heart. She, I mean, look, look at me. I'm saying bless her heart. That's a Nashville thing. Bless her <laughs> heart. Um she was just wanting to, you know, just help me pursue the dream, but it was too much for her after, you know, working full time and two small kids, blah blah blah. Anyway. Yeah. Let me ask you this about part of your story because i've 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 read a lot of what you've written and you've been very um uh, I don't know it seems like you've been very honest about your transition away from pastoral ministry and um I'd love to hear you talk about leaving pastoral ministry because I just from afar celebrated the unique nature of your resignation that it seemed to me like there's no scandal. There's no like <laughs> chaos, which is sadly too frequent, you know. But it's just an assessment of gifting and time to do something else. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that was a major piece of it. You know, there were some difficulties um, behind the scenes, largely um, things that could be, you know, categorized as burnout and, in, 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 you know, in a way, things that we were talking to our elders about. Um, our church, the last three years, maybe four years, I was there. Um, we just went through a really pronounced season of suffering where mm. it, it just, I was burying one person after another and, and not just, you know, elderly members, but, but young people and people who were my friends, not just people in the church, but people that I was close with and, um, uh, uh, um, largely cancer. And it just felt like as soon as we would put one on the ground, another one would get sick. And oh, so, man the bulk of my ministry um, in terms of just the relational pastoral piece of it became sitting by bedsides, you know, hospice. And I mean, it just took a toll. It took a toll on me. It took a toll on my wife as well. And, you know, I was a solo pastor. We had, um, we established elders when I was there, uh, but they were all, uh, uh, um, all lay elders, uh, which Mm -hmm. is great, but Mm -hmm. I was the only full-time person period. So I didn't even have, You know, an assistant or secretary or anything—it was was just me. So trying to carry that weight, yes. And our church was growing, even in the midst of that. One of the kind of sweetnesses of the Lord was to continue sending us people, and and seeing, you know, increasing baptisms every year, and our church membership growing, and the church is filling up. And I was just hitting my, you know, capacity. I have a a very low, I think, um, capacity for those sort of leadership skills that, you know, administration, systems, um, all those sorts of things, you know, all the things that you need as a church planter, which is I kind of hit my head against the wall yeah, yeah. as a church planter going, I don't think I'm wired for this. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um I you know, I need to go into the, you know, an established pastorate sort of thing. Um once we hit a certain, you know, met you know, growth metric, for me it was like I I can't keep all these balls in the air right. and carry the weight of this death every week. So yep. so there was that and you know we went and talked to the elders about it and they said you know we just think you're burnt out um um you know every time my wife and i began having conversations they begin to drift towards maybe this isn't where we ought to be maybe the lord is calling us away and we both sort of sensed that the lord was doing that that was very hard for me to admit in fact i kind of sat on it and kept it to myself for a very long time because i didn't go there thinking you know, this is um, a rung on any kind of ladder. I've never wanted to be a person like that, and and so I was afraid. Number one, yeah. of um, because I talk such a big game about I'm going to be here forever. I'm going to die here. You know, sure. bury me under the pulpit like Whitfield, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then I was embarrassed. Like, you know, I don't want to go back on these, you know, um, ill-advised, you know, promises that I, you know, had been making. But I also, I, you know, I don't want to give up. I, you know, all these sorts of things and I just kind of sat on it. And then after a while, just, you know, kind of sorting through things with my wife, we, we both kind of realized, um, you know, that maybe I've reached my limit there. And so the elders did kind of put some guardrails and, you know, things in place for me, you know um, you know, no counseling sessions in the evening and, you know, different things like that, that certainly were helpful, but they didn't solve the problem of how I'm wired and, and what my gift mix is and those sorts of things. And there was no help in sight in terms of, we're going to get you an associate pastor or sure. we're going to get a full-time, you know, this or that. And so I, we just, I just knew, um, you know, kind of the writings on the wall. Um, but I didn't send a resume out. We didn't talk to anybody outside of the church about this. We were just sort of praying about it and sorting through it. And then in 2014, um, I went to speak at the seminary and, um, at a conference. It was the first year of the, of, uh, of the, for the church conference, which we've done every year, but it, it was the first year, and I was invited to speak. I thought that was kind of weird because I didn't have a seminary degree. Um, you know, I I'm, you know have a uh, an undergrad, but you know, but no master's degree or anything. And so I thought, man, I have to go like speaking at a seminary. I was really intimidated by yeah, that. Yeah, um, I thought there's going to be a bunch of nerds out there and right. they're going to know <laughs> they're going to know I'm not smart, you know. Right, right. <laughs> and so I went and spoke and um I just thought it was a speaking engagement and 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 2 weeks later they called and said, "Hey, look, we're, you know, we're kind of rebuilding this place and it's kind of, you know, a seminary revitalization and we want to know if you'd be interested in coming and as we began to talk through it just seemed like the you know the lord was clearly opening this door for me to kind of be in in my lane and contribute yeah. to this vision that really resonated with me as well and so yeah the transition out um you know was was discombobulating it was it was difficult um emotionally but the lord has only confirmed that you know we we, we made the right steps and 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 he, you know it's been a great blessing since then
0: yeah. So, what's one thing about pastoral ministry that you wish people understood that you think most people might not understand?
1: Yeah, I think the number one thing that comes to mind, um, and something I um, try to keep in the forefront of my mind as a layperson now, is just the um, the emotional toll, the 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 spiritual um, what Paul calls anxiety, right? So when he's listing all of those. You know hardships he's been through, right? Mm-hmm. I was shipwrecked. I almost starved. They tried to stone me. Right. You know, all these things. Right. And then he says, on top of all of that, there is my anxiety that I feel for all the churches. Mm-hmm. And you know, and by anxiety, I don't think he means like sinful worry. I I think he just means I carry the weight of everybody's spiritual health in in a way on 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 my back. Mm-hmm. And, and not in a way that he's the functional Messiah or anything right. like that, but just the fact that he knows he's responsible for them as a shepherd is for the sheep. Right. Uh, you know, and Paul's not a pastor, but he's, you know, he, you know, as an apostolic church planter and as someone who trains pastors and, and cares for the churches, he is a pastoral leader. Right. And so he carries around with him, um, how people are doing, how, you know, how things are going. Mm hmm. And I think the average church member, the average church member, some, you know, do know this, but the average church member, I think, doesn't often think about that. They think of the pastor as the spokesperson and then maybe the guy who either knows me or doesn't know me, but mm-hmm. they don't often think about all the things the pastor is carrying. Um, you know, I tell people now I sleep a lot better <laughs> now <laughs> Um because when you're pastoral like, it's not something you turn off. It's not right. a nine-to-five job where, right. you know, you may be done at the office at 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 6 p.m. or whatever, but it it doesn't stay there. You take it home with you. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, keeps you up at night mm-hmm. when, when marriages are struggling, when someone's struggling with depression or somebody's mm-hmm. sick, you know, someone's yep. ill or there's conflict or just the weight of, gosh, I'm going to have to give an account. Right. Right. I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for these sheep who were stewarded to me. Right. That's not, you know, you know, it's a bad pastor who can turn that off in mm-hmm. in one sense. And I just think the average church member doesn't often think about that. Yeah. How 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 much it weighs heavily on on good pastors.
0: So what would you encourage congregations towards?
1: Well, at the end of Hebrews, this is something that I've kind of made my own kind of personal mission, right? The author of Hebrews says, um, you know, to you know, obey your leaders, number one, but he also says, um, uh, that you would give them no cause for groaning, right? Do not give them cause for groaning because what advantage would that be to you? Mm -hmm. And so I want to be a life-giving, encouraging presence. I, you know, I do have the privilege of, of, of being able to, um, you know, I'm good friends with our lead pastor and, and good friends with the, you know, with our other pastors as well. But I meet with our lead pastor probably every week, maybe every other week. And I want those guys when they see me coming to be relieved to see me, Mm -hmm. to, to see me, as you said earlier, as a, as a nourishing presence, as someone who is encouraging someone that they can be themselves with someone that they can kind of, you know, take the pastor hat off even. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means everything from how I am relationally with them, that I'm I'm more of a giver than I am a taker that I'm praying for them. Um, but also that I'm pursuing, you know, holiness in my own life, that I'm not going to cause any issues in, in, in my, you know, I want to have a good marriage. I want to have a good um, disposition, um, online. I want to, I want to do whatever I can to make sure that when my pastors think about me, they're not having to think, I got to talk about, you know, Jared about that, you know, that thing he said, or this thing that's going on or this conflict that, you know, how he treated this other guy or whatever it is. I want them to, um, you know, not to groan when Mm -hmm. they think of me. Mm -hmm. So I, I characterize that as being a low maintenance church member. (laughs) Um, (laughs) how can I be a low maintenance church member. That's that's my job. And that means everything from yeah, being a um, you know, an affirmer of them, an encourager of them, and also, you know, taking responsibility for myself and and pursuing personal holiness and and being a a good server in the church. Yeah, yeah you know, using my gifts uh, to build up the church, all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, that's great. Speaking of the church, you have a book called The Prodigal Church. Mm-hmm what does that mean jared
1: (laughs) the prodigal church well i'm sort of stealing um tim keller's recovery of the word prodigal right so we you know we think of the the parable of the prodigal son um, or the parable of the lost son and we equate prodigal with uh with being lost or or um yeah you you know running away or something like that yeah but really prodigal means like being wasteful being um you know extravagant or something which is what the son did he went and spent all his money and he was yeah and um you know keller twists that to say we have a prodigal god Mm -hmm. right Um, a god who with his grace is very extravagant who you know isn't wasting so to speak but is is copiously lavishing his grace on us and so i um talk about the church in that in that book as um as as a you know church that's been stewarded um, the message of the gospel, which is utterly unique to Christianity, right? We're the only, um, you know, it's, it's the only true religion, first of all. But we're the only religion that that has at its, um, you know, essence at its core, good news. Um, every other religion has the message of measure up, do better, try harder, you know, be a good person, be moral, be religious, whatever. And we have those messages too. Christianity, do, you know, does teach that we're to obey God and all those sorts of things. But the essential message of Christianity is that God sent his son as a substitute for us. He measured up on our behalf. His sacrifice is, is uh, um, atoning for us. And um, and so we're the only place we can get that. So we've been stewarded this incredible message. And yet, as a critique, the book is largely a critique, hopefully a gentle critique. It was kind of my aim, a pastoral gentle critique of the attractional kind of mindset, which is we have elevated a positive version of legalism or a positive version of law over this essential message. And we've obscured actually the good news. And it was, it's kind of my response to the evangelical church, uh, particularly in the West, um, their response to the fundamentalist kind of um, overreaction, right? So there was a time where the Bill Hybels of the world and, and, and and others looked out and said, man, you know, the church is just known for being bad news people and being stern and kind of, you know, hellfire brimstone, uh, that sort of thing, doctrinaire and boring. Yeah. And and we don't want to do that. So we want to be positive. And so we're going to give people, uh, you know, relevant, practical messages, they would call them and, and, you know, show how the Bible is relevant to their everyday life. And so we're going to give them three or four steps every week here, are positive things to do. And that's really just the flip side coin of the law, right? You know, do is just the positive version of don't. It's not any less, you know, quote unquote, legalistic. It's still the law. It's just more positive. And we dress casual and we have cool lights and we play, you know, hipper music, but it's really just warmed over law. And so we've, we've wasted the stewardship of the gospel, which is one aspect of the prodigal idea of, uh, of the prodigal church. And so that book is really sort of my critique of like step-by-step, what has the attractional movement done with, for instance, preaching? What has it done with the idea of worship? What has it done with the idea of community? All these important and necessary elements of church. How has the attractional movement in a sense wasted the stewardship of the gospel in its appraisal of those things?
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really good. I I mean, I lived through that um, because I'm, we're the same age, and I I used to go to all those conferences in my twenties, and um, the the good side of it is a real desire for people to meet Jesus, right? Yes, and, yes, absolutely. And uh, I I feel like that's sometimes lacking um, in my own life, and uh, just just a culture of evangelism. You know, yeah. I remember going to those conferences and just going home being like, yeah, I want my, my people, my friends that don't know the Lord to know the Lord. I want them to be able to come and hear the gospel. And, um, but what's the danger in that, Jared, can you unpack that a little bit more? Um, where does that go too far? Because yeah, well, everyone, yeah. everyone, if we're faithful to the Bible and as Christians, everyone wants to say, I want my, my friends to know the, know Jesus. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, the, The problem is the trajectory of eliminating barriers. um, Once you kind of get on that, that route, what we've seen experientially, Mm -hmm. um, you can put up guardrails, I guess, to protect yourself against this, but um, I'm with you. So like, I mean, I was sold out in, in, in that movement. I'm not someone who just from the outside critiques that. And in fact, one reason I wrote the prodigal church was to offer a different kind of critique because everything that I had read, Yes, I resonated with it in terms of its truth and, and the statements that it was making, but so much of it just seemed like it was coming from the outside and kind of, um, in a way, preaching to the choir. You know, sure. telling everybody that, who, who already agrees right. that this is not the you know you, you know the path to go. So I thought, how do I write a book that someone in that movement or in that camp might actually consider? Well, so that means I need to write it in a more gentle way and in a more sort of, hey, think about it this way, or what about this, or what if I you know, told you that, or, you know, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. So, it's, yep. you know, trying to write it in a, in a more sort of circumspect way, but I was trained for ministry in, in the, you know, what we used to call the seeker church, right. Um, you know, model, seeker sensitive model, in 1996. Uh, I was a part of a church plant in Houston, Texas, that was very consciously and explicitly a Willow Creek model. And we went to the Willow Creek, um, you know, leadership conference, which yeah. back then was, Um, explicitly about churches, it, you know, it changed over time to be more about, you know, you know, having the CEO of Tyson chicken and that sort of thing. But in the early days it it was, this is how we do church. This is how you should do church. Jared, it is so scary. Like our, our lives are (laughs) parallel cuz 1996 yeah, I still have my notebook man yeah. I look I found my notebook uh, on my shelf uh, a, a few months ago um and at like you know from all the breakout sessions and all yeah. the plenary talks and Dude uh, and so yeah I mean I you know I was there I was I was the there too 1996
0: I was at all okay. those conferences just like you were we were oh, probably man, at the we, same conferences We might
1: have been there together <laughs> brother
0: <laughs> But Yeah anyway. and
1: and so it was just a uh, um yeah the desire was uh the ch- w- we felt like the church wasn't reaching the lost Right and we wanted, uh, you know, churches that we would, you know, could bring our lost friends to mm-hmm. that um, eliminated churchy baggage and yep. maybe, you know, a religious language, maybe, um, and that would help them meet Jesus. So very sincere um, and and great, I, you know, motivation—not just sincere, but a worthy motivation that more people would know Jesus. Yeah, amen. <clears throat> but what 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 happened over time was, it became more about the elimination of the barriers. Um, so, you know, a church that I was in later, that was uh, more of kind of a saddleback sort of model, but kind of creating its own thing there in, in Nashville as well. Um, you wouldn't even hear the gospel. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to bring my lost friends here, they may enjoy that the songs that they're hearing are stuff they would hear on the radio or, you know, that we've got, you know, video segments and different things like that. And then the teaching is here are three ways to be a, a more successful, you know, worker or a, a good husband or whatever it is. But I noticed the good news was wasn't there. The good news began to get saved for more special occasions. Hmm. And then, and then, as my theology developed of how is it that people change, yeah, um, I began to, you know, to wonder, isn't this kind of upside down that we would give lost people biblical principles for their life? Well, they're not even Christians yet. Right. Shouldn't we be giving them the message of, of of the gospel? And so now, even you know to this day, you know the seeker church thing. You know they don't use that language anymore. But now you have guys saying we don't even get to the Bible for five six weeks. You know, sort of thing. And and so we've even lost what church is. Hmm. And you know the beauty of gospel centrality. You know, to preach a message where the central point is Jesus and His finished work. Um, means that if you bring a lost person, they can actually hear the message, you know, by which that they can be saved. But we also know this is something I didn't know, you know, twenty, you know, so years ago. But biblically, the way Christians um, grow in their faith and 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 are sanctified is through a confrontation or an experience of the of the glory of Jesus. So Christians need the gospel too. Amen. Which is the beauty of gospel centrality. So if you're preaching the gospel every week from the scriptures you're providing the opportunity for lost people to come, you know, to faith for the first time and the opportunity for Christians to grow in their faith, to be strengthened in their faith by the power of the Holy spirit. And, you know, such a beautiful skeleton key for, you know, for all of life is this message of, of Jesus.
0: Yeah. Jared, I really appreciate that articulation. Um, so where, what's the difference between, um, the freedom that we have to design and and um, create Sunday morning gatherings mm-hmm. that might look very different from culture to culture, from place to place, um, and the things that you're talking about that need to be essential, like, you know what I mean? Because like w- in in some sense we're we're critiquing a certain model. But in another sense, it feels like we're talking about something that's not model. It's actually convictional in terms of what a gathering of the local church has to look like. Does that make sense what I'm asking?
1: Yeah. I mean, do you just mean in terms of like style or creativity or things that you would use in a service?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, what's the difference between convictions that have to be present and just uh, choices about, uh, where there's freedom to um, to have there be differences between church to church.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that's largely um, a matter of discernment. Certainly I think different contexts, um, c- you know, different things can be appropriate in different contexts in terms of what kind of music you use in terms right. of the style or presentation. Do you have, um, you know, colored lights or not? You know, right. I'm, I'm, no, for you sure. Know, I'm, for sure. Yeah. You know, I'm personally neutral on all of that. Yep. To me, it's not the thing itself. It's what you're trusting to, you know, to make an impact on, on, you know, on a soul. Right. Where are you putting the weight of transformation? Yeah. So in that sense, we can use as much creativity as, as conscience allows to adorn the gospel. But in so many cases, the creativity becomes kind of a substitute or, or obscures the gospel. And it becomes clear that what we're really trusting to impact people is creating a kind of worshipful experience and you know and i think there's tells for that because you know i remember days of 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 advertising where even you know churches i was a part of we would advertise things like um you know this is authentic worship or it's um you know it's worship that moves you and different things like that or exciting worship well all of those things are consumeristic angles basically what we're saying is the worship music is, is is for you right and when really the worship music is is for the Lord. we right. you know, there to, and that's a different question than is the music properly contextualized for the demographic that we are reaching or, or for our community. And right. so, you know, the music at an inner city church in you know Harlem, New York, um, probably should look different, you know, it will look different than it would in, you know, suburban, um, you know, Bowling Green, Kentucky or something sure. like that. Yeah. Um, so it's not a matter of like which style is the, is the right style. It's, uh, you know, um, is it not you know is it not um obtrusive or obscuring the gospel what are people and and that's a different I think and more pointed question where a lot of us we come out of you know environments where there's so much emphasis put on the production that it it you know you you Cross a line at some point where you're putting the weight of transformation on the production it right. itself, create creating an experience, right. so to
0: speak. Right. Yeah. The creating of an experience it feels manufactured. Yeah. Or maybe a, a harsher word would be manipulation. But but, yeah. but I want to give credit to those folks that that they would never say that. And um, but maybe it's a gentle. Consideration to say, let's think about how we're presenting this, and is the, you know, what you win them with is what you win them to. That's that's yeah. the catchphrase, right?
1: Sure. Yeah, and 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 I think there are biblical guidelines, right? So when the scriptures talk about, you know, for instance, singing, we've been talking about music, singing in the worship gathering or the gathering of believers, um, it talks about how how the singing can encourage each other, right? Um, well, that's hard to do if. Um, if we can't hear each other sure if 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 it's so dark number one and the the you know those who are leading are so loud number two um that all we really hear is them and it just becomes uh, sort of a, an individualistic experience so it's this is about me you know just me and Jesus and it's being facilitated by the band sure then I'm not able to you know to encourage those around me I'm not able to experience the body, singing together because i can't hear them right and then sometimes what's happening on stage is so performance driven that it's hard for for me by myself even to sing along i don't know where they're going they're not really leading me they're performing in front of me this is what happened at um my previous church in nashville um it it it, you know it, it functioned as a concert essentially and the songs weren't designed or or chosen um in such a way that they facilitated the congregation singing right i mean that was you know if that was a thought, it was an afterthought. It was about what's the best song and who are the best musicians to perform this song. And the idea was hopefully they would impress people. And yeah. then I remember guys getting frustrated, worship leaders getting frustrated because people weren't singing along. Or right. I remember it, that. You know, they that, weren't was clapping. Me.
0: Yeah. That, that yeah. Was yeah.
1: Or they weren't. And I'm like, well, you're not you're not leading us into that. Basically, you're yeah. you're, you're performing and, and it's great. What you're doing is, you know, um, it's very talented, but yeah. it, it's not. You know, we've lost at some point what the Bible even says about congregational scene.
0: Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, part of the reasons why, you know, over the years I've moved away from that um, style of of church is it's impossible—not impossible, it's obviously not impossible—but it's really hard to have a culture of church planting and church multiplication when the standard is it has to be this amazing order that just captivates you for 40 minutes and this music's got to be just crushing it. And, um, your, your kids program's gotta be, you know, 10 times better than the church down the street. And, you know I mean? All this stuff is just like, yeah, it's good to have values and we value excellence and we're going to do our best, but Holy cow, I can't reproduce that. Right. You know? And so a culture of church planting is, um, is really challenged by that, and I think what this all boils down to, Jared, as I'm thinking about it, even as we talk, is like: Am I a consumer ultimately, as a as a church member? Am I a consumer of ministry, or am I a servant using my gifts to facilitate the glory of Christ expressed through the Holy Spirit, empowering the local church?
1: Yeah, but. The, you know sort of the what that makes me think of though is you will have leaders of churches that are built around consumerism still chastise people for thinking consumeristically which it's always kind of bugs me right this church isn't for you and if you're you know if you have sure. concerns it's because you're you know you haven't learned to feed yourself and and all these sure. sorts of things like well you've set the whole thing up as a as a consumeristic experience. And now you're mad at people for treating it like a consumeristic experience. Right. Right. It's this almost catch 22 or this vicious, you know, snake eating its tail sort of, you know, sort of thing.
0: So how would you encourage pastors? Um, cause you're, you're in the business of training pastors now. How would you, the business you're in? Sorry. (laughs) I mean, that's how you get your paycheck. paycheck. Yeah. You get a paycheck. (laughs) Exactly. I do get, I, I do
1: get paid for it.
0: Yes. Yes. So, um, helping pastors, um, thrive in healthy churches, um, how do you help them help their people not be consumers?
1: Well, you know, everything I think um, begins or is steered from the pulpit, right? Um, It's, you know, from the preaching. So one of the things that I, you know, try to impress upon, especially young preachers who haven't, you know, quite had the experience of preaching week in and week out is, it's usually not one sermon that, you know, changes right. <laughs> the whole church, right. uh, unless there's just some special anointing from the spirit. And, and, you know, you're the epicenter of revival. Um, you know, there's usually um, w- what you face early on is, you know, folks who don't even remember your message points by Sunday afternoon, for you, sure, know? For sure. <laughs> you know, certainly if you call them, you know, Monday afternoon, they might would struggle unless they had the little handout, you know, there or something. Um, but, you know, so don't overestimate what can be done in one sermon, but don't underestimate what can be done with a steady plotting of just working through the scriptures with your people, proclaiming Jesus to them week after week, just sort of a, um, you know, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, just a faithful plotting yes, sir. week after week and and during the week, you know, faithfully shepherding them, holding hands, praying with folks. You know, having fun lunches and coffees and, and everything else, but that faithful preaching, that can begin to change a church and, and even change the DNA on the molecular level
2: mm-hmm. of
1: a church. But it just takes time. It's not something that can be. You know, there's no silver bullet. It's something that um, requires a um, you know a steady faithfulness, and what you'll see over time is 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 a church begins to, uh, begins to crave. What you've been feeding them, but typically not for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but if you are fired up by the gospel, if it's if it's evident that your passion is not for the production, whatever level you have, you, you know, going on in your church, but your passion is for the Christ of the Scriptures and and actually being friends with Jesus, um, that will begin to have an effect um, over time.
0: Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. I, you know, there's, it's another way of saying um, there's no magic bullet uh, yeah. for discipleship or, you know, we all have areas of where we need to grow, th- grow and um, just seeing the steady diet. It's kind of like, you know, you're not going to lose 50 pounds in, in two weeks. If you do, you're going to be really, really unhealthy. Right. But it's a slow plotting of consistency of intake of healthy food and, same spiritually speaking, you know, yeah. and I've seen that in my life. You've seen that in your life. Um, and I pray that it continues. So, well, Jared, man, this has been a great conversation. I've taken up an hour of your time and, um, I, I really commend uh, your writing to our audience. Um, and I really look forward to, um, what's coming next. So are you working on a, on a book right now?
1: Well, I actually have a book coming out. Uh, I don't know when this podcast uh, in about two church, weeks, yeah. Yeah, so my my next book comes out September 21st, I think. So in a couple of weeks from this recording, it's called "Love Me Anyway." Okay. And uh, it's a, it's a Christian living book. It 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 walks through uh, generally First Corinthians 13 and just sort of exploring the you know the depth of God's love for us and how that impacts the way that we love others and even experience love um, ourselves. The experience of lovelessness or feeling lonely and unloved. Mm -hmm. Um, how the lord ministers to us in in those moments yeah well we look forward
0: to that and uh i'll be sure to link to your other books and um i really really appreciate you giving your time to our church today for the sake of our growth and discipleship
1: yeah thank you zach